Welcome to the Trail Less Traveled. Missoula is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can subscribe to the podcast and read more about this week's show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Mandela. This afternoon, The Trail Less Traveled is being recorded in Washington, D.C. We are at the National Wildlife Federation, and I'm sitting with the chief scientist at the National Wildlife Federation, Dr. Bruce Stein. Bruce, thank you so much for setting aside the time and energy to join me on The Trail Less Traveled. It's great to be with you, Mandela. For the record, I also work at the National Wildlife Federation, so I'm also sitting down with a colleague. And I'm really honored to be here in Washington, D.C. I'm here for a Grand Canyon flyover. So I'll be here with the Grand Canyon Trust, the Arizona Wildlife Federation, and I'm representing the Grand Canyon River Guides Association on behalf of permanently protecting Grand Canyon and preventing uranium mining. So we stand with the Grand Canyon Tribal Coalition. That's why I'm here, but I came a day early so that I could come to the office and hopefully have the chance to interview Bruce. So my first question for you is, where did you grow up and how was adventure and conservation a part of your childhood? Well, Mandela, first, let me thank you for coming to D.C. and, and advocating on behalf of the Grand Canyon. It's, it's only because of people like you that we can really, you know, make the case up in the halls of Congress and to the administration about the importance of protecting these kinds of places. So I actually grew up in Southern California at the beach in Long Beach. And, you know, this is a highly urban area, although it was great to grow up on the water because it meant that I had lots of outdoor uh, activities surfing, sailing, skimboarding, water skiing. Um, And so I really connected with the ocean at a very early age. But I would say that what really prompted my interest in the outdoors and and biology, biodiversity and adventure was um, my father's passion, which was to visit national parks. So we spent every summer and and usually our other vacations getting in the car and driving all around the western United States visiting national parks, big ones, small ones. There was, there was no national park or monument too small or insignificant for us to visit. And so I really got my taste for natural history and, and the outdoors in that way. But my parents were not campers. We always stayed in you know the, the motels, uh, along the in, in what I now know are called the uh, gateway communities. I, in fact, I still remember when Motel 6 actually cost $6 a night. And so in order for me to actually begin camping, it wasn't until I joined the Cub Scouts and then the Boy Scouts. And so I mostly joined those organizations in order to go camping and learn how to backpacking. And then honestly, once I figured out the backpacking thing and I could do it on my own, mm-hmm. I didn't actually stay with the Scouts very long. It's a little regimented for me. But it really, uh, I had a, a real interest in, in the backcountry and, and backpacking. And then in high school, I also took up rock climbing, which in the early 70s was not the, uh, not the common thing to do. There were no climbing gyms like there are now. There was only one kind of climbing, what's now called trad climbing, uh, and it was right at the time when, when um, there was a shift from the use of pitons, you know, those iron things you banged into the rock, 
to clean climbing. And in fact, I still own the 1972 Chouinard Equipment Catalog that had a famous essay on clean climbing, which really marked the beginning of uh, you know clean climbing uh, as a as a practice among the the rock climbing community. So these were sort of pivotal things in my early years. Once I graduated high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do in life. I mean, who does when you're 17, 18 years old? So I enrolled at UC Santa Barbara and began taking environmental studies courses. And this was at a time, 1973, shortly after, I mean, the first Earth Day was 1970, the Santa Barbara oil spill, a famous environmental disaster was 1969. And so Santa Barbara was actually one of the first universities in the country with a dedicated program on environmental studies. And um, I became very interested in not just environmental studies in general, but the biological end of things. But I was fortunate the summer of my freshman year to learn about an organization called the Student Conservation Association, it still exists, that offers volunteer opportunities And I applied for and got a volunteer position as a U.S. Forest Service wilderness ranger in the Sierra Nevada out of Bridgeport, California. And so that was really my first sort of profession intro to the professional world of natural resource management and conservation. And that's, thinking about it, that's almost 50 years ago. I can hardly believe it myself. But that became uh, something that was very important to me. I continued working as a backcountry ranger, but meeting some of the other rangers that summer who were studying biology in their college careers made me realize that that's what I too wanted to do. And so I went back to Santa Barbara, but decided that I really prefer would prefer to go to UC Santa Cruz where they actually had a dedicated program in natural history And there was a wonderful mentor there, a guy named uh, Ken Norris, who was a professor of natural history, uh, otherwise known as professor of wonderment. And he, you know, really had a way of inspiring kids and helping us not just look at the natural world, but kind of see and try and understand what was going on there. And so, you know, one thing led to another and uh, working with Ken Norris uh, as a senior, we ended up getting some National Science Foundation grant funding to go out to the Mojave Desert for an entire spring to do a resource inventory of a mountain range where the University of California had recently purchased some land as a natural reserve. And I ended up as the project director for that, leading 10 other undergraduates and um, and also interacting in a serious way with professional botanists. I was not just project director, but I was one of the botanical team. But I ended up interacting with a very generous botanist at what was then the Rancho Santa Ana Botanical Garden, who sort of kind of showed us the ropes. We kind of, we as undergrads, we really knew nothing. But he was very generous in showing us the ropes. And that's what led me to actually deciding a career in in botany was was possible and, and desirable. Once I finished that, I ended up deciding to take some time and travel. And so I, I spent a year traveling around Central and South America, visiting the Amazon rainforest for the first time, making my way all the way down to Tierra del Fuego. And then when I returned to California, I, I of course had to figure out what to do, got a job as an environmental consultant, 
where I you know, was writing environmental impact reports, so I was using my skills, but it also showed me that if I was serious about protecting the natural world, you really need to be doing it way upstream. Once it gets to the point of a project where you're writing an environmental impact report, it's too late. So I decided to go back to school, get a graduate degree, uh, and in, because I was so interested in the tropical rainforest, I moved to St. Louis, Missouri uh, to go to graduate school at the Missouri Botanical Gardens and Washington University, worked with another amazing mentor, Dr. Peter Raven, who was kind of a world leader in uh, not just the field of tropical uh, conservation, but botany and the home secretary of the National Academy of Sciences. And, and that really opened up a, a, a whole lot of things for me. And I spent five years spending a lot of my time in the tropical Andes doing botanical research where I was really um, looking for new species, trying to better understand the group of plants that I was working on. And, and by the end of that period, uh, I'll just say that I was, I was both enamored of the tropics and the biodiversity there, but also very aware of the rate of destruction. And so when I finished up my PhD, that kind of brought me to the next phase in my life, which we can talk about, which was how to turn that scientific understanding and biological knowledge into active conservation. I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about some of the exploration that you did in the tropical Andes and the Amazon. My first glimpse of the Andes and the Amazon was traveling around after I finished college at UC Santa Cruz. And, and I, I really had the privilege of being on just sort of an extended wandering with no particular you know, timeline. We started out, honestly, I wasn't even expecting to go to South America, but we'd gone to Guatemala, started learning Spanish, visited some of the tropical forests in the Peyten of Guatemala and places like Tikal. And then I realized, boy, I'm halfway to the Galapagos Islands. The Galapagos Islands, of course, being this iconic place, you know, where Charles Darwin had uh, so many of his insights um, into the nature of evolution. So we decided to head on and, and hop to plane, ended up in Colombia and then Ecuador out to the Galapagos. And then as long as we were in Ecuador, popped over the other side of the mountains into the Amazon. And it was really that exposure to, you know, just the bewildering life in the Andes and the Amazon that just was amazing to me. Although I had been studying botany, I didn't recognize almost anything there. I spent the year mostly bird watching because at least that I could get a pretty rudimentary guide to the birds. But the thing that really impressed me, not just in Ecuador, but also in Peru, was the part of the Andes that drops down from the highlands along the eastern slope into the lowland Amazon, and what's called the cloud forest. And the cloud forest is perhaps one of the most diverse areas, places on Earth in terms of diversity and richness of species of plants and animals. Uh, in fact, they, they refer to cloud forests in Peru as Ceja de Selva, the eyebrows of the jungle. Because as diverse, uh, many people know about the lowland Amazon and the number of species, but the, the cloud forest is even more um, intricate and diverse. And so it was through those experiences that I decided that that's where I really wanted to go back and, 
and continue to explore. And so when I did land in graduate school and had the opportunity to choose a subject to study, I basically asked myself, what group of plants are most diverse and, and centered in this region that I wanted to go back and explore? And that would require that I go trekking through the Andes and over into the high jungle to, uh, to explore these different valleys. And so I, I ended up uh, studying a group of in the Lobelia family. Many people will know of the little blue Lobelias in their gardens, but the ones that I picked are big red hummingbird fl uh, flowered plants and, and very diverse, you know, probably 200 species or more. But anyway, it was an awesome, uh, it was an awesome vehicle for further exploring these, uh, these remote valleys and eat many of them with their own unique species. And so obviously I was interested in plant taxonomy and reclassifying uh, or, or better classifying the, the uh, flowers that I was studying, but also searching for new species. And there's about, uh, in addition to the plants that I myself have named, there are about nine or 10 plant species that have actually been named for me. So that's, I kind of view those as some of my progeny. Um, but I had a chance not just to explore in the Andes, but also uh, one very memorable expedition that I was on was into the um, some of the most remote parts of southern Venezuela, what's called the Guyana Highlands. Many people will have seen pictures of these um, flat-topped tapuis. There's uh, mountains that rise up out of the lowland jungle, sheer sides, flat top, where Ar Arthur Conan Doyle set the Lost Worlds novel. Um, and uh, I had the privilege in 1984 to go on a month-long expedition where they brought us in by helicopter. They flew us to the top of these tapuis to collect at high elevation. Uh, they'd drop us off, then they would come and pick us up, and, um, and we, we could make our collections that way. And then we had about 10 days of helicopter support. Then the helicopters left, and we were left on our own at the base camp. And to exit, our, our guides actually um, built a dugout canoe while we were there. And we set off in the dugout canoe uh, to go downstream. And it was literally uh, about three days before we came to the first, um, the first human habitation. Mm -hmm. This was in the Yanomami Indian region. But anyway, that was a, an incredible expedition and a lot of new species. Uh, came out of that. But it also really emphasized how quickly many of these forests were disappearing. In fact, that particular region, I've just recently been reading about how devastating the gold mining and the mercury pollution from the gold, illegal gold mining is for that area and the, and the um, impact that that's having on the, the native Yanomami tribes in that area. So as a result, when I finished my PhD, I was faced with a crossroads. I could either going into traditional academic research, working at a museum like the Smithsonian or the New York Botanical Garden, or I could follow my passion in conservation and apply my scientific training. And, and that's what I chose to do. And, and in 1987, uh, as I was finishing up my PhD, the Nature Conservancy was looking to rebuild its international program. Um, in early 1987, the organization Conservation International started up through kind of a nasty divorce 
with the Nature Conservancy. And um, the Nature Conservancy was looking to rebuild uh, its international capacity. So I was among the first staff to be hired into that. And so for the next several years, I worked for the Conservancy as their science director for Latin America and the Caribbean, and really working to help build capacity across the region in local organizations to do uh, to understand the biodiversity that they had, the condition uh, of their species and ecosystems, and identify those places that were pri- should be priorities for protection and conservation. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a it was a great opportunity, and I, I really treasured my time working at the international conservation level. That's the voice of Dr. Bruce Stein. He is the chief scientist here at the National Wildlife Federation. We're recording today on location in Washington, D.C. You're on the trail less traveled. And Bruce, let's talk about that transition, you know, we're biodiversity, exploration, conservation in the tropical Andes and the Amazon, and then putting that knowledge to use to protect resources here in the United States. Sure. In the early 90s, I actually ended up making a transition from working with a primary focus internationally to looking at more detail at the biodiversity in the United States itself. So really uh, looking not outward, but inwards. I'd grown up in California, which has an extraordinary diversity of ecological systems and species. But I had the good fortune to be asked to lead a project where we looked at biodiversity across the United States and what its condition was and and status overall. And that was through taking advantage of about a quarter century of data that the Nature Conservancy and its state natural heritage partners had gathered at that time. And, you know, that culminated in the publication in the year 2000 of, of a book called Precious Heritage, Status of the Biodiversity of the United States, published by Oxford University Press. And in that book, we set out to answer a couple of key questions. You know, what biodiversity exists in the U.S.? How is it doing? Where is it found? And what should we we be doing to better protect it? And uh, the answer to the first question, what do we have, is, you know, we we actually found that, that the United States is far more diverse biologically than most people think. Uh, We documented that there are more than 200,000 described species uh, in the U.S., plants, animals, uh, invertebrates, microorganisms, Uh, but there's probably another two or three times that many that are found here, so, you know, perhaps 400,000, even to 600,000. We also looked at the condition of the species that are best known and found that at least a third of U.S. species and the groups of plants and animals that have been best studied are at risk of extinction. And in fact, at that time, there were already about 100 species, U.S. species, that had gone extinct. Um, And we further documented that there are some groups of species like salamanders, for which the United States is the, the global center of diversity. Salamanders, crayfish, Uh, many freshwater organisms. And so it really kind of helped put the conservation challenge for the U.S. in perspective. That publication really was a landmark in in helping to inform a lot of 
private philanthropic work. Uh, it also helped to inform a lot of U.S. government work. I mean, one of the things that we found is that Department of Defense lands have a higher uh, number of imperiled and endangered species on them than uh, virtually any other federal land management agency, even though they're a much smaller percentage. And it's not because they're doing a bad job, but it's because those lands are in some of our most ecologically precious areas. And so for the last 20 years, I've actually been working with the Department of Defense to help them better manage the endangered species and biodiversity that they have on their lands. That work led to me being a part of a new organizational startup spinoff from the Nature Conservancy called NatureServe. This was essentially a big part of the science apparatus of the Conservancy that uh, that was stood up as a nonprofit organization focusing on the science behind conservation. Uh, and I helped to uh, I, I helped to run that organization as a vice president and ultimately chief scientist there for about eight years, but. During that period, I became increasingly aware of how climate change uh, was essentially re-racking um, our ecological systems and the habitats species depend on. Uh, I mean, climate change is, was something that people have been concerned about for a very long time, but it wasn't until the early 2000s that the so-called fingerprints of global warming really began to be evident in uh, studies looking at the distribution and the population numbers of species and ecosystems. And so by about 2005, I realized that all of this work we as a community had been doing uh, to protect biodiversity and wild places, often focused on protected areas and sort of defined uh, place-based conservation efforts, was going to be upended as climate change continued to accelerate. And so the question then became, what do we do in response to this? How do we do conservation in an era of rapid climate change? And so in about 2008, I decided that I was ready for a, a, a midlife career shift. And so I decided that I really wanted to, to shift from focusing on biodiversity, exploration, understanding, and conservation to what was an emerging field known as climate adaptation. How do we adapt to and adjust to the challenges of a changing climate? And at that time, people were beginning to talk about adaptation, but nobody really knew what that meant or how to do it. So I was fortunate that at that time, the National Wildlife Federation was really beginning to take climate change seriously mostly from a climate so-called mitigation standpoint. How do we reduce greenhouse gas emissions as a way to reduce the uh, future impacts of climate change, the pace of, of global warming? But it also recognized that we need to begin to adapt to and adjust to the impacts now. Unfortunately, these two approaches to climate change, climate mitigation and climate adaptation, at that time were often viewed as being in opposition Right? that if you even mention the potential of adaptation, it was viewed that it would undermine the argument for climate mitigation, for addressing the source of the problem. Uh, to me, that was very narrow-sighted uh, because, in fact, they are not dueling, but they are complementary approaches. 
we're already dealing with climate impacts. We need to be adapting. But if we only adapt, you know, the climate change will get to a point where we will no longer be able to uh, adjust because the changes will be so dramatic. Anyway, uh, I began working here at the National Wildlife Federation on building out this new discipline of climate adaptation. And together with many partners and federal agencies, state agencies, other nonprofits, we began pulling together some expert work groups and, and ultimately came up with an approach that we call climate smart conservation, uh, a sort of a stepwise approach to doing uh, conservation and adaptation planning that allows you to understand, you know, what are the climate vulnerabilities and risks? Which species and ecosystems are going to be most threatened by changing climatic conditions? And then I understand what can we actually do to address to reduce those vulnerabilities? So to, to take a very forward-looking perspective on conservation. If you think about it, conservation and conservationists is pretty retrospective. You know, we usually as conservationists are trying to either keep things as they are because we've already lost so much or go back to the way they used to be, because, you know, which we think of as more ecologically desirable. Although kind of at what point you go back to is an open question. Do you go back to pre-European colonization? I mean, obviously humans have been influencing the landscape for, for millennia through Native American practices. But, so any, but, but the bottom line is that it's often been this very retrospective. How do we restore back to something better than current condition. But we recognize now that under climate change, we actually need to be begin thinking ahead, looking at uh, you know forward-looking conservation goals. And those are gonna be very unsettling and they're gonna look different than they used to. And we're, the, the bottom line is that, as we uh, describe in our conservation, climate uh, smart conservation guide, we need to manage for change not just persistence. And so that's what I've been emphasizing these past 15 years of, of my career. This afternoon, the trail has traveled is being recorded at the National Wildlife Federation in Washington, D.C., and I'm sitting with Dr. Bruce Stein. He's the chief scientist at the National Wildlife Federation. He has been here since 2008, working mainly on climate-smart conservation. Bruce, my question for you now is... For those people listening, I cannot say that I'm one of them, but I can say that I spend a lot of time in communities around the world and in this country who respond this way. The climate's always been changing, and they completely write it off. So I'm wondering, you know, the climate's always been changing, but what's happening right now at this accelerated pace? What can we do about it? And how would you respond? How do you engage with folks who do not recognize climate change? It's a great question because, unfortunately, climate change has become politicized as an issue in a very unfortunate way. And there's often concerns raised about, oh, is it happening? Is it not happening? And what I will say is that the science is absolutely clear that it not only is happening, but it's accelerating and it's beginning to impact all of the things that we hold dear, our wildlife, our ecosystems, our communities, the increased wildfires that are blazing out west, the sea level rise. 
and the hurricane damage in the southeast. The science is clear. That's only the political science that is uncertain. And I think that what you're really hearing is people being uncomfortable with what it means, what is the implications of acknowledging the immediacy. Let me just say, climate change is something that we used to think would be a future threat. The future is now. You often hear people say, well, you know, these models are uncertain. There's so much uncertainty about climate change. How can we make decisions in the face of that uncertainty? But in fact, when we look at the climate models that scientists are projecting and what the thermometers and the evidence base is actually recording, we find that in fact, the climate models have been incorrect. They've been underestimating the problem. What we are beginning to see now are things that in fact, we were not predicting or projecting would happen for 20, 30, or 40 years. So there's a real urgency. And I think that it's beginning to affect local communities. It's not unrelated that State Farm Insurance has decided to stop writing any new homeowner policies in the entire state of California, right? This is in large part due to the drought conditions and the wildfire risks that have a climate change signature. It's not entirely related to that. There's some other reasons, but we're beginning to see the impacts on our own lives. It's not the polar bears. You know, it used to be that the polar bear was the symbol of global warming, you know, on these melting ice caps. In fact, it's right here in our own uh, neighborhoods. And, and the hunter and angler community, as you mentioned, is very keyed into this, you know, because people that have been hunting and fishing in the same place over decades and generations are very sensitive to these things. And we're beginning to see shifting species, the shifts in the species, the, the birds that visit our backyards, the, uh, the wildlife that, that we hunt, the, um, the habitats that they depend on. You know, there is reams of, and ever-increasing reams of uh, scientific evidence uh, supporting this, but there is also increasing anecdotal, the people, people's lived experience in this, and, and Native Americans in particular, because of their close ties to the land, you know, have been seeing and experiencing this. There's a proverb in Africa that I'd like to share with you. If you think you're too small to make a difference, you've obviously never spent the night with a mosquito. I would like to now focus on what we can do. The people out there listening, hopefully you're inspired because every little thing that you do does make a difference. And there's another little saying that I'd like to share with you. Apathy is mankind's ticket to extinction. I've noticed sometimes people like they kind of glaze over a little bit or they just get overwhelmed and they think they can't do anything. But I want to instill that you can. And Bruce, I'd like to ask you what it is that folks can do now to take part in, you know, climate smart conservation and making sure that this world is a not necessarily better place, but a place that has, you know, adapted for the seventh generation. Yeah, it's so important to understand what we can do as individuals, what we can do as communities, and, and what we need to do as a society. Um, and it starts at the individual level, obviously. So um, thinking about our choices, um, obviously trying to do things that 
that reduce the amount of carbon pollution that we individually produce, um, and to make the habitats in and around where we live uh, more inviting for the wildlife with whom we share it, planting using native plants whenever possible, and engaging in community uh, habitat restoration work. There's so many um, opportunities that are out there for people to uh, get involved in volunteering, whether it's helping to restore a local uh, stream side or watershed. Um, and then obviously um, advocating uh, at the local and state and even national level for policies that recognize the urgency of the climate crisis and how they intersect with the biodiversity crisis. These are, these are linked crises. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also unfair to assume that it is only individual action that is going to be able to address this. I mean, it really requires a societal response. And so it means, you know, really holding our public officials accountable, making sure that the misinformation about it does climate change exist. I mean, let's just let's just really, you know, be clear. The argument is not about whether climate change exists. It's about what our response, what an appropriate response should be. And is that response going to be adequate to maintain our quality of life as we know it or not? Because what people will not do not talk about is they, they might talk about the cost of addressing climate change. They're not talking about the cost of inaction. And as we can see from the cost of the wildfires that have been tearing through communities and the flood damage that's been destroying areas in coastal regions, the cost of inaction, let me tell you, is going to be way higher. It's that old, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And then I think it's also worth making sure that at a community level, we're doing our planning in ways that is going to be as resilient and resistant to climate change as possible. Because a lot of the decisions that we make now in terms of land use planning and water use consumption, things of that sort, they are going to be with us for decades to come. And so, you know, I often, when we are, um, we do a lot of training of federal and state land managers and climate smart conservation. And the issue always comes up, you know, I don't really have the time to focus on climate change. I'm too busy, you know, focusing on the problem right in front of me. Yeah. And, um, and I respect that. But what I would say is that we need to make sure that the way in which we are addressing these near-term immediate problems does not compromise our ability to address the longer-term issues related to climate change. We need to align you know, the way that we uh, uh, address near-term problems with the longer-term needs for adapting to climate change and enhancing the resilience of our habitats and our local communities. That's the voice of Dr. Bruce Stein, the chief scientist at the National Wildlife Federation. We are here at the NWF offices in Washington, D.C. I'd love if you could share three bits of advice with whoever's listening out there. Well, I guess the first bet is really in order to care about something, you need to experience it and appreciate it. And so take the time to get outdoors and just be in nature, because being in nature is not only good for the senses and the soul, 
but it is also what allows you to sort of develop empathy for the non-human world. I'd say the second piece of advice is really to try and follow your passion. I feel that I've been privileged to uh, be able to do that in my career and have meaningful employment that also uh, has a meaningful impact on the world. But I also know that as a parent, you know, I sometimes need to understand that my own kids have their trajectories and they need to follow their own passions, even if it's they're non-traditional. I have a son who's an acrobat in Las Vegas, for instance. That is definitely not what I expected him to grow up to do, but that's what his passion is. And then I guess finally, I would say just think about how in, in your own actions, you can live a life that is actually going to help promote a biodiverse world rather than just extract from it. And there's many ways to do this. Trying to live lightly is a great place to start. But just to, to be intentional about our, our choices. And even if you take small actions, to me, it's that intentionality that gives us hope. It, it helps us understand that we have agency. And in fact, I'll just say that the entire reason why I chose to spend the latter part of my career working on this emerging field of climate adaptation is because I think of adaptation as providing hope in what can otherwise be a, a very sobering uh, you know, um, expectation of the way things are changed. So uh, retaining hope and, and living intentionally. Bruce, thank you so much for taking the time and energy to join me on the Trail Less Traveled. Great to be with you, Mandela. Thank you so much. Namaste, Missoula. Mandela here, your host of the Trail Less Traveled. Thank you so much for tuning in. The show premieres every Sunday evening at 6 Mountain Time. You can stream it live online at trail1033.com. And the show is, of course, a podcast available everywhere. The show archive is available online at traillesstraveled.net, where you can also learn about our international outreach programs. I'd like to thank my colleague, Dr. Bruce Stein, the chief scientist for the National Wildlife Federation. We recorded this show at our office in Washington, D.C. In the beginning of the interview, you may have heard Bruce say that he spent a lot of time at national parks growing up. And with that, I want to encourage you all to visit your national parks. If you want to learn more about your national parks and ways in which you can be involved with education, outreach, and conservation, please be sure to look up the Western National Parks Association. They've been doing amazing work since 1938. Well, I'm on my way to float Missoula for a little TLC, and I want to go ahead and say thanks to Float Missoula and all the sponsors of the show. That's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. Until next week, please get outside, do something for the earth, and remember, conservation is not a spectator sport. Please speak up and use your voice on behalf of the resources, the wildlife, and the wild places of this planet.
Namaste, friends and listeners. Mandela here. In order to keep the podcast ad-free, I'm asking folks to donate a few dollars each month. You can support my podcast and outreach programs in schools by visiting traillesstravel.net and following the link to my Patreon account.